Welcome to the My Personal Football Coach Youth Soccer Player Development Podcast, episode 23 with Miguel Rios. Welcome to MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Soccer Player Development Podcast. Discover all the secrets, hints and tips about soccer player development and soccer coaching from some of the leading figures in world soccer. Here's your host, Saul Isaacson-Hurst. Hi guys, Saul here, back again with another show. This uh, episode we've got a great guest, uh, one of the best uh, youth development recruiters around, the uh, one of the top scouts in 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 uh, football, uh, who started off in youth youth football and now works in first team football. Uh, Miguel Rios, who's a real uh, real um, bit of a living legend in, uh, in the London recruitment scene in terms of. Uh, academy football uh, one of the top scouts around uh, who really did know how to get them players through the door um, and uh, really really um, honored that he agreed to come on the show and share his journey uh, he worked uh, started off his career he worked at Barcelona uh, so as, a, as a coach but before going into working in recruitment working at Arsenal uh, then Brentford and then uh, in the academies and then moving into first team football with Fulham and now at Wolverhampton Wanderers where he's first team scout European scout so Really privileged, he's got a lot, a lot of fantastic knowledge to share. This guy is one of the best around. Uh, really respect him, respect his, uh, his, his ideas. He also knows, knows a lot about coaching as well, because he's got a coaching background. Um, so really, really has been there and done that. And one of the best around. So um, if you're interested in, in, in recruitment and scouting, um, I'm sure you're gonna love this show. So it's uh, really, really enjoyable, really privileged to spend an hour or so in his time. Um, so uh, I know you're gonna enjoy this one. Um, just uh, just busy as always trying to develop the app. Uh, if you don't know, my personal football coach is a, is a, is an app, is a technical coaching app uh, designed to support players who who want to work away from team sessions. So it's like a homework app. So uh, you can download it from Apple or Google. Once you go to my personal football coach and sign up, then download the app. And it's designed really as a course. So there's a course there with 30, 20 minute sessions. The idea it's uh, it's supposed to supplement your team training, uh, not repli- not uh, repl- replace it. So really important. And there's lots of uh, bonuses on there, bonus ball mastery practices, uh, some some tips for myself, the coach. Uh, so uh, really, really going well, the app now. Um, it's uh, really going strong and uh, lots of people all around the world use it. Players of all levels, pro players, uh, academy players, uh, am- amateur players, uh, Wolverhampton Wanderers use it in their academy uh, for their foundation phase of the homework program. We've got federations using it and we've got local clubs all around the world. Also now we've actually, we're doing, because uh, we do, we've do we been doing the club partnerships for, for a long time now, we're doing team partnerships as well. So sometimes clubs don't want to sign up to it, but if you've got a team, a team of players, a squad of players, and you want to support their technical development in a consistent quality quality way, uh, we're now doing team partnerships, so you can sign up and get your whole team on the app uh, with a discounted rate, uh, with the bespoke app as well, with your team logo on there. So if you're a team manager and you're interested in um, want to find you know quality ways to get your, your players to work away from training, maybe you only got them once or twice a week, uh, this is the, uh, the only online technical app proven uh, at the very highest level and used at the highest level as well. So just drop me an email and we can discuss more. But uh, without further ado, let's get into the show. So Miguel Rios, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on here. Can you just give us a little brief uh, background about your playing and uh, coaching or scouting experience up to this point? Okay. I started off um, as a coach, um, working basically local football, working in semi-pro leagues as a coach. Started coaching um, in schools while I worked. I used to work in the city. So work. What did you do in the city? Um, worked on the front office in credit derivatives um, on the trading floor, um, building trading models, designing trading models, and supporting the, the, the project and the business analysis of, of implementing those business model business um, um, models into the IT infrastructure at the bank, in banks basically. So I worked as a contractor, worked for myself, um, which allowed me to take time off to do, to coach. Um, do my badges as well. Okay, and then what? Tell us about your 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 uh, 
and you started in football? So starting off in football, I basically coaching schools. I ended up coaching in a Spanish school, which is in London. Um, was coaching football ball there. Um, one of the teachers there, she lived in Barcelona and she was doing a study year in English in the school. Her husband, her boyfriend at the time, husband now, is um, was one of the Barcelona coaches. So basically he came in, saw what I was doing in my sessions and invited me over to, to attend sessions, to watch sessions. And that turned out for me that I ended up doing work for basically Barcelona soccer schools out in Barcelona, which is the, um, the level below, the layer below the actual academy. So players will go in there on trial, filtered out to, to progress into the academy. So that allowed me to take up and, and take in a lot of information, what's done, how it's done, why it's done um, at their academy. So I just filled myself with sessions, speaking to people, knowing people, friends now who are coaches all over the world, um, and still even there that, that you leverage information, you get ideas from, and, and just have discussions, general discussion about football and coaching. And so what was your next, after Barcelona soccer schools? Um, I ended up working at the academy in Arsenal, at Arsenal. Um, started doing their pre-academy foundation recruitment in West London. Ended up doing um, running a development centre for them for about four years, three, four years there in West London, looking after all of that. And ended up um, while I was doing my coaching, coached those sessions, did 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 everything there. Came to a point, got to do, did my B license, and within a month of doing it, it wasn't something I really wanted to do coaching anymore. So I just got onto the recruitment side. And then after Arsenal, let's just, we'll go through briefly your yeah. career and then we'll go delve Yeah, so there. after Arsenal, went to Brentford, um, a new project that was set up there. Um, spent six years there um, in the academy, ended up there working through um, to become academy head of recruitment and then working in the first team recruitment as well there. Following that, moved over to Fulham to work in the first team in first team recruitment as a first team scout in Europe and spent two seasons there and just recently joined Wolves this season after leaving Fulham as European scout. Okay, so let's let's just flip back then, talk about that experience of Barcelona, obviously, you know, a famous academy. What was that like going in there, looking at those sessions and, and thinking about now your experience? What did, what, did you, what did you notice about that? What was, what was anything unique about that? Um, the culture. The culture, um, and I'm not not the environment, but the culture. Um, the environment is the environment, and they set that anyway. But the culture of teaching, of not coaching, but more on the on the teaching aspect, aspect especially in the foundation phase. Um, so what it, do you mean about that specifically? Um, there's a lot more one v one, one on one, one, one on one training. Um, there is one v one training in specifics on on players, but they get sidelined onto doing. Um, in the position specific work rather than than just coach 1v1 so you'll get players coaches will spend a lot more time individually with players making sure they understand it um, making sure I mean you look at session a session now and sometimes look at sessions and I'm thinking what's the purpose of the session um, and when you look at these sessions you're actually thinking that player has to actually understand or get the concept of what he's learning before that session finishes or they move on to something else. Yeah. So, and then it's clever in the way they do it and it doesn't hinder the group. So players will not progress onto the next level of the training. So it's the way it's structured is really clever. Um, and there's, I want especially foundation phases, there's no fail culture. So if you fail, there's nothing wrong with failing. It's just do it again, do it again, do it again right. until you succeed. So thinking about that, I mean, obviously Miguel. So your mm. your uh, your background. Is it where where's your family from? Is Spain. Spain. So Spanish. Yeah. So that's obviously the uh, language is no problem. Yeah, but, I yeah. mean, but I mean, then so tell us about your time at the um, at the soccer schools yeah. in terms of obviously that's filtering down from the academy. What does that look like in terms of there was their curriculum? I mean, it must have been a great yeah, learning experience no. for you in terms of. And then tell us what was the difference between yeah. what you learnt maybe on in the English courses yeah. and what they were doing in Barcelona. Um, Compared to my time there, the, I learned less about sessions there. So I'll learn if I'm watching in England, um, I'm watching academy football, academy sessions, I'm learning um, more about sessions and session structure, session planning, 
Um, when I watch sessions there, I'm learning a lot more about coach, that coach delivery, about how sessions are set up. Cones, you don't need 100 cones, you don't need them in the right order. It's all set up properly in the sense of not random colours or anything like that or random cones, but there's a structure. It's, it's basically a lot of boxes, a lot of rectangles. Um, and, and there's a purpose to that where you never see in, in sessions, I see a lot of boxes in, in sessions like 10 v 10, 21, whatever it is, but what part of Fort Pitch is square in that sense? So that their logic is let, let's do it in a circle, um, let's do it in a triangle, let's yeah. do it in a rectangle. So things like that and, and then it makes you think well why are you doing that so you're actually looking at the learning aspect and and it's it's maybe a subconscious way of a lot of players learning and, and finding angles and getting the right body shape to receive a pass because if you're doing a square the body shape is simple it's just in the angle of the corner yeah. but if you're doing a triangle or a circle you have to, you have to think a little bit more and oh, okay. things like that will develop your awareness so did you do, I mean, that's a lot of rondo work, it's like a possession yeah. work. So did, yeah. you, did you do a lot of that in your soccer school? Yeah, so the session plans are all based around um, around possession and ball management. Um, so I wouldn't say ball mastery, but how you manage the ball and how you deal with the ball, because not all players will receive the ball and take lots of touches and dribble and beat 1v1 because they might end up being a centre-half. So and I'm careful with saying that because they don't really profile players that young. So they might end up being a centre-half, but they do what they're good at um, and have to be, and deal with the ball well, manage the ball well. And when I say manage the ball well, it's not just the manipulation part, um, but I'd say the decision part as well. So when you receive the ball, what are you going to do with it? What's the purpose of the next pass? Um, it might be a safe pass or it might be a pass to break lines, but it's to move the ball, ideally it's to move the ball forward. I mean, I've seen a lot of the Barcelona teams play and I've heard a lot, it's very much about quick play, move yeah. the ball quickly, is that at the foundation yeah, phase Yeah, exactly, well? so it's not just move the ball quickly, it's sort of the management, what's not in the management, so it's make that decision quickly. Yeah. So if you've made the decision before you've received the ball, you've made a quick decision. So it's things like that and, and their identification of players is quite interesting because it's looking at things a little bit like the, the Tottenham model kind of thing, can players make change decisions quickly? Can they receive and, and, and make a decision and change it? while they're on the ball. So things like that are very important to them. So I was going to ask about that, about the recruitment. So yeah. anything else you can tell us about the recruitment, obviously with your, um, your field? The recruitment's quite, quite clever. So, and it, it works for them because how the leagues are structured, they, they from under eight will play, under nine will play in leagues. Um, and the coaches, well, every game the player coaches will identify players of the opposition that might be of interest. And they'll just go into a list to be scouted. So the scouts will then go and, and, and identify players that way. Um, players identify have to be players that can can deal the ball, can 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 make a difference in games. I think it's quite interesting as well looking at the landscape there. Also, your experience in London. I mean, obviously Barcelona, one of the biggest cities in Europe. Hmm. Uh, they basically got carte blanche. They've got first pick. Yeah, the them and Espanol, yeah. I mean, Espanol was still you, yeah. you know pretty much Barcelona have got their first pick, right? So do you think that as a that has a big impact. That gives them a big advantage, and that's why they're successful because they have got such a, in a, a you know, uh, the first pick, and that's such a yeah. big recruitment area. I think that, and, and just the layer before that might be is their, and with respect to the worst player in their group, is a good player. Yeah. So their difference between their best player and their worst player is very narrow. So it's 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 interesting. You say that because they will only bring players in if they improve the groups. Yeah. If not, they'll go into layer before underneath, yeah. and if not, they'll go to Espanol or whoever it is because they're going to really play for two or three teams in the area. Yeah. So there is stories of players getting released and actually coming back into the system again, right. um, and and that's the way they feel. They feel if he's not ready at the moment, let him go and develop elsewhere. I think it's uh, it's quite interesting because you know a lot similar the French clubs as well. They have a huge base, yeah. hundreds of kids in different development centres. And we often talked about this, remember I was back at Tottenham, and said, we'd like to do that, but it's so difficult because it's such a saturated market in England, you almost, well, we don't take him, someone else has got to take him, so yeah. you almost, you know. I think, looking back on it now, I think that's, that is a good way of doing it, in the sense of you have to recruit the model that your club works with and your coaching programme works with. So that's what you need to recruit from, recruit for. Um, so within that, I always think, um, if that player doesn't suit your model, just let him go to another club. Um, now and, and, and that's the thing how competitive it shouldn't really be that competitive because you should only recruit players that suit your model 
and I think a lot of clubs now recruit players to recruit players because they're good players rather than that's the best player for my, my coaching model. Right, okay. So then talk a little bit about then how did you get the opportunity at Arsenal? How did that come about? Um, basically, um, knew Roy Massey uh, and yeah. Roy invited me in um, and ended up doing some coaching there, doing some recruitment there and just got trust um, there and I think that's the biggest biggest thing in football to divert, to, to get on is, is the trust factor that people actually trust you and know what you're going to do is, is going to be to a good level. Got to meet um, Sean O'Connor there and since then been extremely close to him, to where he works, learned a lot from him um, and, and him and Roy were very good. Sean's come up before in this programme, he's like a bit of a, a legend in yeah. um, in, uh, in academy football. Tell us why, why, is, why is he so good, what did you learn off him? Um, his humbleness, um, his ability to share information, um, his ability to teach, to teach um, and, and, and let you understand and let you manage yourself to develop yourself. Um, so his experience is massive. I call sometimes, uh, we have conversations, I meet him for a coffee and we just have conversations in general about just recruitment, scouting players. Um, so he's seen a lot of players go through the system um, and, and just knowing that he's seen that type of player with, with those, um, with that ability, with those attributes go to the system where he's ended up, what he's needed. Um, it's just his knowledge is excellent. Is excellent. So then tell us about those early days in scouting as a, as a, yeah. as a, as a newbie scout in uh, one of the biggest yeah. clubs in, in England. Um, what, was that, what was that like and what did that look like day to day? It was interesting. Um, you basically, I, I, well, I, I started right at the bottom, so I ended up doing under six, under seven, under eight pre academy. Um, and it's quite um, um, a very competitive market in the sense of um, people are very territorial. People um, take very personal, they own players, which they, no one owns any player. Um, clubs feel they, they own players, clubs feel um, that's their player. Um, and at the end of the day, the only people that own, and, and I'm saying that in, in that way, is parents. And, and they're the ones that need to make decisions on players rather than um, coaches, academies, scouts, academies. Um, grassroots coaches as well, not allowing players to go to certain academies, things like that. So you, you learn a lot. Um, you learn a lot how to manage those situations, um, and just stick to the, stick to the rules within that. If the player doesn't want to come to your club, that's it. Um, just go to another club because th the way I always looked at it was you have to recruit the right player to your club, and it has to be the right club. What do you mean by right player? So, what's on that? Um, type of player to fit the model? What do you mean? Yeah, so, and if we look at all the, the Champions League academy, uh, academies, they've always got top players and they'll always recruit the best players um, at those age groups. I, I, I've never felt they're looking at those groups, they're going to be the best players at 16, 18, 21, 14, um, because they're the best players then. They have, um, and I'm saying it loosely, but they've got, they'll have ceilings physically. And they'll have feelings, uh, ceilings technically and, and tactically and they're learning. Sometimes they're learning, they're not going to develop, the learning's not going to let them develop or the desired determination for whatever reason. I feel you just have to be a bit more selective at the younger age groups um, and, and to get players that will last through your system as long as possible because that's what you want to do. You don't want to bring a player in and get him at eight or seven and release him at nine or ten. So I think you, your due diligence is it has to be really good in your recruitment so identify players you feel have got longevity in the system and have got the best chance to make it through. So talking then about you're, you're identifying seven, eight, nine-year-olds mm. to get in the club, you don't want to release them. So what's the due diligence? How do you make a decision on that on a player that young? What's, what goes into that? Um, you have to look at um, the personality. Um, a lot of it is the, the social, social, psychological corner. Um, what's their learning like? What's their desire to learn? What's their desire to want to play? why they're here um, and, and we've both seen players come through the system and the players that come through the system are usually players that want to learn and, and want to improve and the desire to improve so you look at them you're also you're looking at technically um, how good they are but then I look at some on the 10s on the 12s on the 14s in the system at the moment who aren't always technically as good as they should be so they still have time to learn as well I know there's obviously the, the, the best years at foundation phase but there is there's potentially players you can bring at younger age groups that you can develop technically 
if they've got certain attributes, the learning attributes, physical attributes, whatever it is. Um, one thing I always looked at um, with young players was their feet, how quickly they can move their feet. Doesn't matter if they're technically bad, but how quickly can they move their feet? Um, how how, how are they at their agility? Um, things like that are, for me are very important. I mean, I've never spoken about this really, but there's, I've been to, to recruit players and there's players in the system and players England's nationals in the youth sections that I recruited from an athletics and another one from gymnastics. So that's just looking at attributes, looking at what they could do with their body and things like that. Um, it's just a different way to recruit and it's marginal gains really. That's what you need to look at as working at Brentford, for example. That's what you have to look at. You have to look at marginal gains that um, other clubs won't be looking at areas that other clubs won't be looking at. I think it's interesting, as a, from a coaching perspective, I always enjoyed working with, like you say, players who want to learn, but also clever players yeah. who had that football brain, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. A lot of the time I felt there was a little bit too much emphasis on physicality. 100%. 100%. What, what do you think about that? Um, I mean, working it backwards, so if you look at a first team player, any club, there is there needs to be physical attributes. If you're looking at an under six and thinking he's going to have those physical attributes, I think it's it's a massive gamble, massive gamble. One, you don't know how they're going to physically end up. People will say, I look at their dad, I don't believe in things like that. And then you have to look at what the player's good at now and you have to look at what he's going to bring to the group as well. So will he survive in that group kind of thing technically? So can he deal with the ball in that group? So if he doesn't, one, he's going to dilute your session that you've got. And if he can deal with the ball, but he's physically small, He's not, going to, he's not really going to have a chance because he's not going to get on the ball that often. So unless he's one that, that can get on the ball and, and, and can impact games when he, there are small sizes, it's a difficult one. You have to look at other stuff like the, the age bias stuff. You have to look at can you play them down. Um, so there's a lot of areas there you can do for young for players that aren't, haven't got the physical attributes yet or may never have them, but they're still good players. Um, there are things you can do there to, to work with them. Um, and even sometimes you just let them go back into grassroots and let them develop there if, because if Academy Football is not going to help them develop them go and, go and play in the development centre go and play back in grassroots Just because we're talking about the young players then, what was your thoughts on that, that Michael Calvin documentary uh, Hunger in Paradise because um, there's a lot of talk about you know, recruitment yeah. and uh, going at young players I think it's, it's an interesting it was very interesting to watch um, when I look at that um, it's a difficult programme to do because the book gives a better picture but if you're trying to cram in whatever amount of information to an hour show it's you're going to highlight things that you can highlight so I think it's a little bit um, difficult to gauge on that when you look at the book um, it gives you a better picture um, I do feel players recruit players at young ages just to recruit them because they need um, 16 players around the nine group to play two 6v6s or two 7v7s whatever they play, or two five fives wherever they're playing so sometimes I feel they just recruit to recruit um, so I, I agree with that part the, the other side of it is I don't feel grassroots football gives enough to their development for them so maybe an academy is a better place for them even though they're not going to be a professional footballer so it's the what you have to the expectations is, is the important part there which I don't think is addressed by many clubs um, and, and that's the biggest part for me so when I was working, when I was working in academy football, I always, and I always said that, and I always told each player that I signed that he was going to get released. Every conversation, every player was going to get signed, he was going to get released at some point, be it um, in academy football or he's going to be transferred if he made it professionally. Because when a transfer is made, basically the player is basically released. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the word is a little bit clever there, but what I'm trying to say is expectation in their mind and the, when you have that conversation as parent is you're going to be released you do it in a positive way yeah. because this is just a journey for you are you happy with that journey are you, are you happy to commit to three times a week training game on Sunday wherever it needs maybe as you get older um, change your lifestyle um, how you, you treat your body how you eat and things like that are you happy to commit to that type of um, lifestyle and if they are they're right and most parents will do it but you really have to explain it to them and you still have to continue to educate them when they're going through the system. It's quite interesting because I, I, my reflection on that is it was, it was, it was quite one-sided I mean um, and, it, and I think you make a good point there as well is that you assume that grassroots football is you know this sort of uh, yeah. you know uh, utopia and actually you know the, the quality they could get at an academy could actually be a good experience yeah. but I think like I say it's about tempering expectations and educating the parents What's your thought? I think now that uh, I know uh, Tottenham are actually showing that 
that um, that documentary to parents yeah. as part of their recruitment process? What do you, what do you think about that? Um, I don't think it does any harm. Yeah. Um, I think parents need, and, and most parents I do know, do have their, their feet on the ground. So I think as long as you're managing expectation, um, players will have ups and downs in academy football. They'll they'll understand. They'll they'll get to understand as they get older the issues that players have. And as friends of, of players and people and parents will make friends during the journey, mm. their their sons will be released. You never they never see them again. Things like that. So it, it's a difficult time for parents. So I think I'm not sure trying to shock parents is the right thing. I think trying to educate them is 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 the key. Um, so. I prefer the education part. I do agree with, I don't think it's a bad thing showing that, but I think the education, the continual education, yeah. is something that's... Okay, so I just want to go back a bit and go back to the Arsenal days, because that's yep. your first experience. Obviously, when I was a coach at Tottenham, uh, Arsenal were renowned for aggressive yep. aggressive uh, recruitment strategies, and you know, the names of uh, Sean O'Connor and Miguel would strike fear into the into the hearts of uh, into coaches and managers all around London. So tell us a little bit about this, the, the recruitment strategy at Arsenal at um, that time. So when I worked with Sean, we we knew every boy in London at those age groups that were potentially a player that could play in the academy. So we would work together, um, watching as many games, getting as many scouts to watch as many games so that we knew every player of interest. Um, in London, I think all, all that is is just doing your job. If you're a scout, you need to know all the best players that in your in your age groups, and and who you also know, need to know from under six. And it's hard to say in the players under six is going to be good enough for under eight. But at that time, at that moment in time, who are the best under sixes? Who are the best under sevens? Who are the best under eights? Who are the best under nines? Because and and the other side of that is you you have to understand that those under eights who are in the middle of that group of under eights might be very good under 14s. So you have to know all the best players. So, and, and for me, it's important in, in the recruitment side, and especially in the scouting side, to know every player. Um, know everything about them, um, where they play, school they go to, um, know the parents at least, and, if it, and try and get them into your sessions to identify them, bring them in, and, and see if they're the type of player you want to bring into your academy. So how did you become, you obviously start doing little bits and pieces and yep. you, you, you sort of progressed to quite yep. a good big role at Arsenal. Tell yep. us about that progression at the club. Um, it, it, it was just a progression. I didn't really realise it was happening to be fair. Um, so I worked in academy, scouted players, coached and, and, and just brought, tried to bring the best players in that I saw as the best players. So literally we would know every player at every academy in London um, and they're unsigned players. Let's invite them in. Um, let's invite them into training. Once they're in training, do they like what we're doing? Do they like what we're going to tell them? Do they like the coaches? Um, do they like the coaching pro program? Um, and, and I think that's that's where the key is with, with players. Is um, and, and and this is one thing I've always felt very strongly about. In always is we're always talking about players, but we're not talking about children. So for me, every one of those under sixes, under sevens, under eights are still children. So it's knowing the child. So are they the right child for you? And it goes back to what we spoke about before. Um, are they learners? Are they ones that have got a desire to, learn, to, to, to play, want to play football every day, want to go on um, and become the best they can on the football pitch and in training? Because there was that, that, that going back to that, that um, documentary once again, mm. there was that, that quote saying, you know, someone said, oh, you, you know, you can't spot a player at six or seven or eight. But I mean, obviously, that's not what you're trying to do, is it? What, no. what are you trying to do? No, and that's the thing. When people say you can't spot a player six, seven, eight, I agree. But all you're trying to identify is the best young player who can develop into, into an older player. So that's all you're doing. I, I agree. You can't spot a player under six, under seven, or eight. Think he's a professional footballer. That's no one can do that. And if they do, I, I've heard people say that. Oh, he's going to be a top player. He's going to be a top player. If they say that and. Uh, then probably not in the same job in, in 10, 15 years' time. So it doesn't. they can really say what they want as well, to an extent. Because I think that's what a lot of clubs do. They do sell players' dreams. And that's where the documentary did spot did hit the spot a few times, where um, a lot of people are sold dreams that aren't realistic. And it goes back to what I was saying, when you do sign a player in the academy, that's the initial conversation, it's you're going to be released at some point. 
um, and you have to set expectation. There's one point in that, I don't want to talk about his documentary that I'll interview, but it's quite, there's one point in that documentary where that boy who was at Derby yeah. uh, got pulled out, but my issue was that obviously, uh, you obviously know the background to that story as well, I'm not sure you do, it's about, it was the dad actually, who was at, you know, City, M Madrid, yeah. Atletico rather, Derby, and my, you know, Lionel Bell's in, why is such a young player being in so many clubs? And obviously, you know, as you probably know the background story, it's more, it was more of the dad was pulling him in and pulling him out. So just tell us a little bit about that, the parents and how important they are and how much of an impact they have and no. uh, are they a problem and what's your relationship, um, what's that, your experience been with those, that sort of thing? I always feel you, as well as recruiting the right child, the right player into academy, you have to recruit the right parent. Um, because an example is if a player's not going to get the boy to train in, he's, he, he, it's more than likely he's not going to develop as, as well as the other players in those groups. If the player's gonna, if the, the, the dad's gonna be correct, high pressure environment at home for the child, it's a problem. Things are a problem. So you have to be understand and and, and try and recruit the parent as well to an extent, um, as as well as the child to become that player you want him to become. Because to be fair to the academy system, and I think I've said this before, I think on Twitter that coaches and coaches hate this if I say this is coaches have minimal impact on players in the sense of they will develop them technically tactically but that's probably about seven or eight percent of their working of their week of the child's week yeah. the rest of the rest of it is spent at school with their parents they're the ones really that uh, the, uh, are the bigger contributors to the, the child socially psychologically in those areas in their learning and things like that and I think that's other areas that need to be addressed more and, and coaches have a massive impact, but it's not as much as they think. So when they deliver their sessions, it should really be, again, technique, tactically. Can you, can you create a learner? Can you, can you spark their learning? Things like that. Interesting. So then tell us a little bit about then, I mean, you, so you're Arsenal, you're working part-time, you're still mm. working in the city then at that time, were yeah. you? And then did you progress up to, what, what, was, your, what was your? So I just coached, coached in West London. Um, and, 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 and what asked them, what, what, what role did you progress to? At, at um, just, uh, I, I, I took some under nine sessions, under 10 sessions and things like that. But I think in Arsenal at the time, there's only a level you can progress to. But in terms of the scouting, so what you just like, a, what, what, what was your title as a scout? Um, scout I think it was just regional scout at the okay. time. It was just regional scout. So I looked after the scout for West London, <laughs> yep. um, up to foundation phase, around a development centre. So how many, how many, to give an idea, how many hours a week are you doing in, in this role? Oh, massively. And, and the first two years, it was unpaid as well. Right. So to get a foot in the door in academy football sometimes and to get to a level, you have to do things um, unpaid and, and it was voluntary. Um, and voluntary, but my learning was massive. Right. Um, so uh, I, I spend, say, two evenings a week at the academy, one evening a week at the academy, two, um, one evening coaching at the development centre, and then Saturday and Sunday watching games, um, youth, youth games um, for foundation phase and pre academy. Okay. And then, so, okay, so talk about your next um, project, you, yeah. uh, Brentford. Tell us a little bit about that, how that. How that came about? Um, basically, Ozzy um, Banji and Sean O'Connor. Ozzy Banji went into Brentford as director. I'd never met Ozzy. Um, he'd worked at, at Watford. Um, he knew of me. Um, he contacted me and said he wanted to meet me. No idea why. He told me it was a, a club in, in West London. He was going as a county manager. He met me on the same day as, as Sean, so Sean went in there with him as well. The next day, he met me and Dan Buck, both on the same day, different locations, and he convinced both of us um, to join the academy. Um, so what was, he, what, did, what, did he, what was the role then? Same, similar role, just part-time yes, scout? Yeah, it was, it was part-time to be full-time, so within a year, I'd become full-time. Right. Um, so that was the conversation we had. It came to a point where it, I was working in the city and I wasn't um, enjoying it. It wasn't something that drove me to, to to enjoy what I was doing. It wasn't enjoyable work. So financially, it was obviously a lot better, but it wasn't really what I wanted to do. So worked in part time. Part time. So I was with Sean as his assistant. Um, again, developed the academy. We, we had we had to start from from scratch. The level of the players in the academy wasn't the level of it was probably looking back at it, out of centre of excellences, it was probably 
second from bottom, something like that, in, in no one knew who the academy was. And so immediately the task was, one, get players who, who are good enough um, to play academy football, not, not to improve what's there, but to play academy football, um, make, um, improve the brand, um, make the club somewhere that parents would trust you with their children to develop. So the whole project was massive. What we had to do from scratch was, was massive. Recruit new staff, recruit new scouts, um, put in a scouting structure that fitted in to what Brentford needed as, as an academy. Um, we're not going to compete with the Chelsea's, the Arsenal's. Again, reflecting back on, on what I did at Arsenal, we knew every player. We're not going to know every player in, in London as Brentford. One, they won't come to us. Two, they're too far. Lots of reasons why. So we have to identify players that would suit what we need uh, to develop as an academy and, and fit into the model. So talk a little bit about that, that contrast of you mm. know being at Arsenal then going to, to Brentford. Yeah. What's that like in terms of, say, so you talked about different sorts of players. What sort of players are you looking at? And, um, yeah. and then, then how do you, we'll go into that in a minute, but how do you, then how do you convince the player to come to Brentford yeah. rather than going to yeah. a... Um, to a, to the, the player, player. And, and it might sound really silly what I'm going to say, but the player we're looking at is exactly the same level as player as I would have done at Arsenal. The level would have been exactly the same, um, regardless if it was at Brentford. And I'm not sure, uh, and a lot of people have seen that at Brentford, the players that have come out of there now, once Academy closed, the players now, most at Cat 1 Academies, top quarter of their groups, England Youth Internationals, um, Alfie Mawson, England 21. So there's players in there that have developed and, and we're at the level of, that are at the level of the Champions League academies, the Arsenal, Chelsea, Tottenham's. Um, so the same player would recruit. We'd have to look at places from working at Arsenal. Okay, let me, let me and I reflected back and I thought, okay, would Arsenal see the middle of the, as many middle of the groups, under eights, for example? Another aspect was I put up a, a map of London and the southeast, and knew every scout in every region of the major clubs. We then graded those scouts at different levels. So if an area was too competitive or a scout was very good, I, you, you had a lot of time for respect for and knew they worked really well, you wouldn't focus a lot of time, effort, energy, mm. expenditure on that. You'd look at other areas where you thought, okay, this is a good area we can compete in. So identifying areas, development centres, where they had, there were clubs at development centres, what can we, we can compete there, we can be as competitive then, we can be as good as them in those areas. So you're looking at basically uh, weak links in the chains at other clubs? 100%, 100%, and, and I think a lot of people at clubs don't think that way. Yeah. Um, you're looking at that, identify staff at other clubs as well. Um, we try to identify uh, a number of staff that would come in and, and help us and do what we're doing. Within yeah. there. Tell us a bit more about that staff. What do you mean, identify staff? Um, so, in areas that we were um, weaker in. Um, so, for example, working at Brentford, you've got the M4 corridor, M40 corridor, you've got the North Circle that comes in as well into there. So, let's identify all the schools, all the clubs, all the leagues in an easy commutable distance from that. Um, let's not look at East London, for example, because East London's going to take you, it's, it's quicker to get from Reading, which is 50 miles, whatever it is, than it is from East London if it's 10 or 11 miles yeah. for a parent. So what's the point of bringing a child in all the way from East London if his commute's going to be two hours, hour and a half, which you can't anyway, but yeah. if it's going to be an hour, hour and a half, whatever it is, within the time limit when you can bring a boy in for 40 minutes, he's going to have more time at home, he's going to have more time after school. If he's coming in from East London, stressed, parents stressed, not going to eat properly, not going to study properly, so the holistic side of that, you have to take consideration into that as well. And what about, did you, get other, did you identify other scouts you wanted from other clubs and go and tap them up? No, work? not really. Um, you, you, identif you identified them, some wanted to come, because yeah. the, the problem, the, the biggest problem was budget. Um, the budget at Brentford was minimal compared to other clubs. Um, so the only reason you you could identify scouts, which is going back to the question you asked me initially, was you'd identify scouts who wanted to develop themselves. Right. So which scouts weren't getting their opportunities, other clubs? Which, cl which scouts would 
come in and want to learn and want to develop themselves and would have, a, uh, in a way, a fast track in their learning, in, in their responsibility, yeah. in what they could do. And, and you gave those people opportunities. And so you moved up to head of recruitment at yeah. to, to um, Brentford. Tell us a little bit about that, your role as uh, head. Um, what, your, what is your, what's your, your job in town? Also, I'm interested in, a little bit interested in your, um, your uh, scout development. How do you teach scouts to mm. see what to recognise? Okay. Um, so, I mean, once you start moving up to, to academy head of recruitment, you spend less time out on the grass, watching players out at grassroots, other academies. So that's, that's one thing you do less of. You, you do less of, you do more a lot of, as you say, the organisation side, development side. So for all, all the scouts that I had, I would try and speak to them once a week, at least, once every few days, at least. So the key scouts, and, and their staff, they'd speak to them, they'd have an open, they can call me, anyone could speak to me any time of the day. The worst thing that I always found when I was a scout was people not returning calls. So senior people at clubs not returning calls and you're trying to bring in players in that are good players, but they'll take two, three, four days to get back to you. So for me, it's always getting back to people, regardless of their level at football clubs, at, at your football club, because they're helping you, they're working for you. And so I'm saying, for instance, I'm a new scout. I'm working for you. What, yeah. What's your what's your bits of advice for me to go and find them, um, those gems, those hidden gems? Yeah. So, so what we initially did was we brought them in and started like a um, a talent ID program where player we would give them um, it's like a mini project of what's two or three games of academy games, two or three academy sessions, um, identify not the best players. We we're not looking at identify the best ones with certain attributes so an interesting one which is okay identify the best technical players in that group identify those my next level my next stage of their progression is okay you said he's the best technical player but what does technique mean is it is ball striking is it is 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 ball manipulation is it is 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 short passing long whatever it is the, the technical detail is massive you know the technical so let's define that a little bit more and and again you're helping them understand what what players can do at younger ages any age group and areas their their strengths and weaknesses so they can go out when they're going back to report on the players sending you back a report they can give you the detail that you need to look at and um just interesting that the um, talking about those those hidden gems. We've got a yeah. couple of questions. A couple of questions. I'll do it now because before we move on to the first yeah. team uh, thing, is a couple of questions for some of the listeners. Um, top three things he looks for in a player when he is watching a player for the first time. Wow, that's a, that's an interesting one because it's not one you can really ask. I'm not going to swerve the question because I'll come back to it. But it all depends on the age group. Right. So in the younger age groups, it's it's all about. Um, their, again, what we said before, their learning, their desire, um, determination, can they deal with the ball, could they deal with the ball in the future? If, for example, if we um, put them into the programme, um, one thing I'd always say, their agility, younger age groups, um, going through the age groups, you, you'd start looking at youth development phase, their technical detail, is it good enough? Right. Um, you're not going to get every player having a wide technical base, he might have a narrow technical base for example, but he might be very efficient in the way he plays and effective in the way he plays, so you can't deselect a player because you feel he's not technically excellent for example, technically very good because he may not need to be technically very good because I look at first, and this is sort of reflecting on the move to the next stage in that question in the first team, is not every first team player in the Premier League or in Champions League is, is two-footed. So, and, and I have a real thing about when I'm watching sessions and, and looking at players and, and scouts saying, no, he's not good enough, he can't, he's technically good enough, he can't use his left side. Okay, <laughs> that's fine. What's, what can he do on his right? Does that, does that compensate? Is he good enough technically on his right side to play? I did, um, which is an interesting um, way, but yeah, it, it's got to be, can he affect a football match more than anything? That's the most important one. Can he affect a football match? Do you feel we can affect a football match in the future? Um, because sort of going back to what we're saying about under eight, so they're going to become a professional footballer. We don't know, but have they got something there? Um, be it their intelligence, the technical, physical, whatever it is, can affect football matches. Is it something you can work with and, and develop for the future? As you get older, again, can affect football matches. Then again, you you will have players who are a little bit functional in their in in the way they play. 
with respect to someone like Ryan Mason when he came through the council system, deals the ball really well. Does he really affect games now or when he did in first team football as much? Keeps the ball for fun, but is he a player that's really going to break lines with his passing every time kind of thing? So as you get older, sorry, as players get older, you're always looking at different parts of the game. Do they fit into to the programme more than anything? Uh, another question here, just, I think you've answered a little bit, but we'll just go over anyway. What emphasis do they put on character, social cycle, corners or personality traits? You, I think you've gone over that, but and how is this reported, identified? Um, it's an interest. this is a, it's a really, it's one that I'm getting my head around at the moment. So, scouts are going to watch one, one game, two games, three games, report on the player. Um, it's interesting how, how and that may be in a three week period or a month period. So, we're judging a child for example, in academy football, on a month of his life, in those, in those, so social, psychological, mental, he may be at a stage in development where he's not really developed that part. So he may develop later. So for me, it's a really big one. Even when you look at first team football now, I go to watch a game in France, Germany, Spain, and I'm looking at a player in one game. That's one sample of that player, and all I'm taking away is one sample you have to look at the broader picture of that you have to look at him across a number of games clips from a number of games so whenever I've in, in first thing football you, you look at him in different scenarios you look at him um, when, when they're winning the game 2-0 when they're losing the game 2-0 when it's 88 minutes and it's 2-1 they're losing 2-1 or it's 88 minutes and they're winning 2-1 so you have to look at him in as many different environments as possible with younger players again bring him into different environments when you bring him on trial when you're watching him on grassroots try and look him in, in different environments in, in good weather bad weather sometimes you haven't got the time to do that but I think it's important if you can to try and do that because all the scout does is taking a snapshot of that game he's watched but really you should be taking a snapshot of a longer period I assume um, it's like I don't know, I don't know I, mean, I assume it's easier at a younger age to make a snapshot rather as they get up the tree and then now in your first team role I suppose it's the, you know the uh, I think it, indications got, of it are much bit greater right yeah so you've got it's easier to watch a player in, in the first team a number of times because of, of the systems and, and the IT infrastructure you've got around you to be able to watch on video whatever game but what, what I mean like you know if it must be I don't know if it's like, as an eight year old well, say tonight like, obviously I come with a lot of yeah. players and I have relationships with clubs it's a lot easier for me to make a decision on an eight-year-old than a than a than a fourteen, fifteen-year-old. Oh, definitely. Because you can see he technically moves really well. That's potential. Whereas a fourteen, fifteen-year-old, it's like, well, there's a lot more uh, no, variables I agree. in I agree. in a, in a step, okay. right? I agree. However, one of the things I did, which in academy football was, if I've got that boy on trial or as a boy I'm monitoring, I'm not going to watch him just as grassroots. I'm watching play through school. Yeah. A different environment. Yeah. He's probably going to be the best player. What his behaviour is? It's not his behaviour is in good or bad. But his, his tactical behaviour, does he hold on the ball a lot more because he's the best player? Yeah. Is, he, is he a player, a team player? So you have to watch them in, sort of saying the snapshots you have to watch them in are different snapshots. Yeah. And I think it, it's extremely important. It, it's one of the things we did at Brentford which worked really well, but people didn't really understand what we were doing. Um, so at Brentford we would take players to go to play outside London, to, to Birmingham, Leicester, wherever it was, to our coach journeys. People used to think, well, why take in under sevens, under eights to, on, on two-hour coach journeys to play 60 minutes of football? Actually, what we're doing is we're spending two hours on a coach with the children, getting to know what he does in his, in his, when he's in, in spare time, what he's, what he's doing with his teammates, what he eats, yeah. spending some time with them sitting at the back of the coach or we're sitting next to them on the coach, the staff what they like, what they do, what time they went to bed. You find out so much information there. Um, part of that as well, we did it with combined age groups. So people talk a lot about biobanding and it's always on the pitch. But actually, why can't you do biobanding off the pitch? So on the coach with players, with the under sevens, with the under nines, for example. Yeah. So a lot of that, you can stretch the players a lot more yeah, yeah. and get their learning accelerated. Interesting. Uh, how much um, use of data is used uh, examples of types considered. How, how, how important is data now in the scouting? In, fir in first team or academy recruitment? Well, uh, in all, I okay. mean, it's quite interesting just because just, uh, obviously, what's, and also, let's ask this, and then I want your thoughts on you know, how the FA have changed their, yeah. their, their recruit model now, haven't they? And they've gone yeah. to more data driven and just released a lot of scouts. Um, I don't actually know what, what went on. I know, a lot, I know the staff that, that left at the FA. I don't know what the, they're putting into place in the FA. So I can't really comment on, 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 on the data. My background is an analytical background, so I understand the data, I understand the purpose of it, I understand 
people will talk about assists, but then I think this goes a little bit further because if you look at the goals, passes completed, things like that, that's just really a statistic. What the FA are probably trying to do is the analysis, so combining a number of stats to build up an analysis of information. So that's the analytical part, so it's not really stats. Um, a couple of things I've done in, in academy football, for example, is I did a little project for myself, a little research project, where I want us to know every player in our academy who received the ball with his non-dominant foot and received the ball with his dominant foot. So there, so by doing that, the video analysts, as the code in each game, that's, that's the information's already, you just have to, to, just to drag it out of, 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 of the system. So by that, we identified lots of players who were always receiving on their dominant foot to make the pass on their dominant foot. So there's a lot of players you identify there by, let's try and get them to receive on a non-dominant, to play with a dominant, to, to, to open up space, to, to improve their touch. So I believe a lot in, in using the data in the right way, in the right context. Um, so I use data from my first team's um, recruitment as well in, in the scouting to identify um, players with, for example, if I'm looking at um, a defensive midfielder, let me find a defensive midfielder who's got a lot of recoveries, who makes uh, recoveries and tackles are different things, so a lot of recoveries, tackles, um, he makes a pass. And that pass, for example, um, leads to a passing chain of three or four passes because if it's a bad pass and it's two, if it's a chain of two passes, more than likely that first pass isn't a great pass. Mm. So, for me, mm. data is essential. It's interesting that I suppose, like in as an obviously, well, I assume in first team, it's a lot more prevalent because you have the, you know, the the environment. Yeah, the resources. How there. could you use the data more? Say you have a trialist coming; he's on a six-week yeah. trialist, which you happen in Premier League, you get a six-week trial. How could you use data? to make a decision or is it always I just going to be right? I don't, I don't think I you can. I fancy him, I don't fancy him. I don't think you can make on, on the technical part, I don't yeah. think you can because if we look at a football match, um, on the ball a player is approximately, I think it's like 1.1% of the time on the ball. So the technical piece, I don't, be, I, I don't think you can. The physical parameters, the physical testing, I believe it gives you an indication. So if you've got a player that comes in and his physical stats, and I'm not talking about speed, power, endurance, I'm looking at agility, um, and areas like that, it's 10 meter sprints, anything you can, any tests you want to do. And if they're on par with an academy player, bang, straight of interest. If it's too low, okay, he's not been in the academy system. So we can't really judge him, but in a po I think you can use it in a positive way. If you lose it in a negative way, I think you'll probably make a mistake because if you're bringing a boy in at 14 from grassroots and he's not got the same physical stats as um, an academy player, of course he hasn't, he hasn't trained for three times a week for the last five years. So I think you just have to use the context of it, context of it very carefully. Okay, so because we're getting we're out of time here, so I want to get on to now your, yep. your first team uh, experience. How did that, your first role at Fulham, how did that come about? What was that it was like? actually, I started working first team at Brentford. Um, okay. So, being so who was the manager at the time? So it's Mark Mark so Warburton. Mark's got a bit of a history in in the city as yeah. well. Was that some sort of? Did no, you have some no. So it was, it was Frank McParland. Um, so he was sporting director at the time, um, and just got to know him. And he trusted me in going to do some first team reports, um, scouting for him, um, and ended up just bringing him into the first team because of that. I wrote lots of reports for a few reports for him. Went to watch a few players. Um, I guess it's. Um, you, when you have opportunities, like you have to make the most of it, and what you produce has to be of good quality. Um, so, in, in, in those reports, you, you write the detail that you see, the detail that you think the player can become. Um, so, for example, for a centre half, extremely important for a centre half to be able to adjust his feet quickly off the ball. Can he adjust his feet to turn in and out of the ball slides in either side of him? So, you need a lot of detail in there. What was, um, what was the major difference though between when you got into first team and then the difference between working first mm. team and academy? What was the, what was the, what was the major differences? You look less, a lot less at potential right. um, because a, any, any first team manager in the Premier League, in the Championship, any league, and I'm, being, I'm generalising it, but 99% of them want a player for them now. They're not going to really want a player to develop for the next manager. It's very rarely you get that. Um, but yeah, they're going to want a player for you now. I mean, if I send them a player, if I speak to manager, he's a top player, he's going to be really, in two or three years' time, he'll be excellent. He's going to say, no, but I need to get promoted this year, I need to win the league this year, yeah. I need the player right now. So that's the biggest, biggest, biggest one for me. 
and for me that's an easy one I just store that player I just I just have all my notes all my information I have it all all recorded in my head on, on, on whatever on my laptop whatever it is in my, in my database so have you still got a map on your wall but this time no no it's, it's a different it's, it's a different yeah <laughs> yeah you have that got because no player in the world. No, I've got um, I've got different team sheets yeah in different formations yeah of different players who are under whatever, whatever age it is, um, youth players, 21s, players that are going to be over 26, players are going to be free transfer in a year's time, anything like that. So I've got all stuff like that recorded, which I need. To, it's basically uh, that information is I'm using for the future as I'm six months, a year's time for transfer windows. So tell us about, about Fulham then, how did that come about? You've worked, you moved across <coughs> West London to... Yeah, uh, so Mike Reed came in there um, and he offered me a role there. Um, to be as Europe, work for him as European scout. Works for him. Very, he's very, very good at his job. Very super organised. Um, learned a lot from him in the organisation and how to build. Because he had to rebuild. He had to build a department and how to build a recruitment scouting department across Europe. How to manage that. How to transfer that information to a manager. Um, it's quite interesting though, because you, you've looked at, you've gone into a club like Brentford and you've built a scouting mm. network over, you know, uh, West London or for instance that part, and yeah. then they've gone in and seen a, a world almost, you know, an international. Yeah. What's the difference between that, you know, and how, how did, you know, in terms of how you relate to, to your scouts and how the information comes in? What's mm. the major difference? I think the, the information that comes in from scouts is exactly the same. The technical details different. Um, it's less about what can they, what you think they can do in the future. It's imp that is important, but it's, that's less priority, less a priority. It's what they can do, um, how they play. Um, for example, centre forward. Um, for example, going back, to, and this is going back a little because I don't want to comment on any players now, but someone like Thierry Henry, a lot of his finishes came in off the left side, right side. So identify players who have got certain attributes that your manager wants. So your manager, what I want, I want a forward but defaults more to the left side because I've already got someone coming in from the right side kind of thing. So you're dealing a lot more specifics and the parameters are already there set for you kind of thing. So you go and identify players with those attributes, which goes back to maybe can I use the data to identify that? Do I have to watch hundreds of games to watch that, uh, to identify players like that? So scout reports, wherever it is. Um, so, so, so in terms of how you work now, as obviously now you're at Wolves mm. or when you're at Fulham or, or mm. Brentford, so how do you work? So the manager says, look, we, look we need a new fullback, for instance. Yep. We want them this quality, we want them to be certain height or this or that. Or does it more like you're saying, look, I found it also, but I've got a left back, or I've got, do you still say, look, I've got this hidden gem, I found this. Yeah, yeah. In, I'll, uh, I'll always do, I'll always do that. I'll always do that. Um, for example, the manager might say to me, I need a new, we need a new left back next season. So my first comment, um, would, would be, is he short base? Do you want a short base or long base? Do you want him technically good or do you want him to be someone physically good who can, who can work the length of the channel? Do you want to play inside or outside of the channel? All the technical, all the detail, I know it's not technique, but the technical detail, the detail you want, you have to establish. If you don't ask, you're going to bring him X when he wants Y kind of thing. Yeah. So you always need to be specific in, in the type of player that he wants yeah. because you don't want to bring him something he doesn't need. Um, a young player, Jim, of course, because he, the budget for this transfer window might be 10 million. He might be spending 9 million on a centre forward, and you've only got a million left, and you, all you can afford is that that gem. So you have to have different players. And I'm saying about I've got different lists of players of different types of value, experience, age that fit into different categories. Because the last thing you want, and I see it at a lot of clubs at the moment, is in transfer windows, they make their decisions late, and those decisions are usually made because they're all the lists they have, their lists are pretty quite small. Yeah. So the more options and recommendations you can have, is, for me, is, is essential. And then talk a bit about the lifestyle. What was the life, what's the difference between your lifestyle working as a first team scout and what mm. it was like working in the academy? Yeah. I think I probably worked <coughs> a lot more hours um, as working in the academy. Um, one because it was a new project as well, um, but also academy football is is in the evenings, so trainings in the evenings and Sundays games, training Saturdays. Um, so a lot of my time was spent um, with that. At the moment, in, in first team football, I do a lot. Of, I do the European scouting, so with that, I'll spend two or three days abroad. So, for example, um, this weekend I was away in Spain. I picked up a Segunda game on Saturday 
picked up two picked up in two games on Sunday and picked up a 19 under 19s game in between that as well <coughs> so your your lifestyle changes in I'm at home in the evenings which suits my lifestyle to an extent um, but the the volume of work is 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 different in the sense of I do my work when I'm away so I'm, I'm, it sounds really glamorous going away traveling but I don't have much time to myself because I'll be doing my scout reports meeting agents um, meeting contacts um, on players and, and, and speaking to people about players, watching them train, watching again, watching on the 19s for players that may be um, on my radar in a year's time or two years' time. So, it's got, I mean, talk about glamorous. I mean, people often you know, associate that with academy football as well, yeah. glamour. And we know we've yeah. worked in it. Just tell them what's the reality of working full time in or even part time in academy football? Oh, academy football is um, relentless. If, if, if it can be relentless in the amount of hours you put in. Um, because you, I could potentially, at my time in the academy football, I could have worked from eight in the morning till nine o'clock at night in the academy. I, I would have had something to do. Um, and now my, the, the, I still have a lot to do, but I can manage my time a lot better. Um, which again, now I've, I've got, I've got twins age three, and, and I've got another child on the way. But things like that suit me at the moment. So. I would never say I wouldn't go back into academy football because I really enjoyed my time in academy football. But the only reason I would go back is to make a difference. But I mean, so uh, why do you think the culture is like that though in academy football? Why do you think it is so extreme where it is, you know, you're the hours you're working six or seven mm. days a week, 10, 12 hour days, these are not unusual things. But that's across the board, that's every club. Why do you think yeah. that is the culture? And then at first, maybe it becomes yeah. a little bit different. I don't know. I mean, I'm going back to, to, the, to the Barcelona. Um, and from my experience, when I went to speak to an under-9s coach and when I speak to, went to speak to an under-19s coach, I'd get the same time. If I went to a club now and went to speak to an under-9s coach and speak to the under-18s coach, 23s coach, I wouldn't get the same attention time. And, and I think it's a lot of it is um, the culture, the massive culture in the sense of not all the best coaches are under-9, under-10. And in a lot of countries, a lot of places abroad, it doesn't matter what age group you're working with, you still have to be the best kind of thing. So, in academy football, I watch some under nines and the tens, and they're not always the best coaches at the club. Um, and it's rare to see top coaches working with the underage groups, and they're going to cost money. So, I think it all comes down to cost and so budgets. Do you think that Marcelino maybe invest a little bit more in the coaches in terms of the budget yeah, and stuff? Yeah, and I, 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 um, I feel, yeah, clubs could invest a, a lot of more in, in the coaches. Um, and, and I feel in the education because coaching badges are so expensive, um, yeah. and that's a, that's a massive one as well to get your A license. I've seen, I saw a job I think advertised the other day. It was for an A license coach, and I think they're offering twenty thousand pounds. And yeah. I've no idea what an A license costs, but it's it's not going to be cheaper than five six thousand pounds. I'm not too sure the exact cost of it. And you're a man of the world in terms of like you've been around, you've been to Barcelona. What's your thoughts on on what we could improve in England? First of all, like the uh, the uh, education programs the FA deliver and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, the first thing I'll start with going upwards is, is grassroots because a lot of people will say um, there's too many players playing in in academy football with birthdays September to December. They're the players that come from grassroots football. That's because coaches and grassroots are playing the older ones, the ones, the ones that for them are the better players. That that's one for me to improve. So I think education from the FA downwards into grassroots. Um, and I don't think what they've tried to do in the last 18 months, two years, really changed very much. Changing to five-side football, to, to five, it, it's less players will get game time on the pitch before it's seven-a-side. More players will play, they might not get as many touches, but more players will be active, more players will be playing. So I think getting that in place, getting more players touching the ball, playing, playing games, um, delivery of courses, I find, and, I, and, I've, and I've always thought this about the FA coaching courses, I, I've done the Talent ID courses, I've done my level four Talent ID, um, and that compared to the coaching courses, the coaching courses were more driving tests. So if you do things the right way, and you deliver exactly what the, what the, the tutor wants, you pass your course. It's not about development or looking ahead and, and how players improve, it's, it's literally 8v8s, whatever it is, 6v6s, technical practices, not drills anymore, practices, and, and passing those, but really it should be 
And going back to someone like Chris Ramsey, I've watched some of his sessions and he can put on a session about cones, for example. They're the things that coaches need to be creative and, and, and be, that's how they develop. Because I, I see a lot of coaches posting a lot of, on blogs of, and on Twitter um, of, of sessions and people copying that's a good session. But yeah, that's a good session for his players. But it, will that be a good session for the players that you have got that you're coaching? Is that, are they, is that what your player needs? So I think you, you start from zero from your sessions and you develop sessions that suit your players mm. all the time. And I think the education part of the coach, of him being creative, I think is, is lost. Um, I don't think enough coaches can put on a session without cones, without bibs and with three footballs, for example. Yeah. I don't think many coaches can do that. OK, and just finally then, what, what bit of advice would you have for a young, young scout who wants to get into talent recruitment, wants to be a full-time scout, mm. travelling around the world, you know, watching games? Um, uh, what, you know, what sort of advice would you give? Work hard. I think that's, that's the biggest thing I can say to anyone. And you started off working for free. Do you think that's yeah. a big important thing? Massive, uh, massive. And it suited, suited me at the time I could do it. Um, it won't suit everyone. But I think it's important um, that you invest. And for me, I didn't mind that because I was learning all the time. I was in the environment that I could learn from Sean, from, from, from Roy Massey, I could learn from them. Could Do you speak think that's to, then having a mentor is really important then? Yeah, um, having people around you that you can learn from. And even if you don't have people around you, go and watch sessions, go and ask questions, the right questions. And one, that's one thing I found in football, you, you have to ask questions, but you have to ask questions in the right way and at the right time. Um, I've worked for managers that you can't speak to them unless you call them at six o'clock at night or meet for a coffee after training, because all he's focused on is that training session for that day, how he's planning his team for the weekend. You have to get people in football at the right time, I think. And invest in yourself as massive, learn as much as you can, watch as many games as possible, watch as many sessions as possible. I've watched sessions, I watch sessions all the time, and even with, with if I'm walking my children in the park, wherever I see a game of football, I'll watch it, not to watch players, but just to watch all our session and things like that. What's the coach trying to do? What's things like that and asking yourself questions and developing yourself more than anything. Miguel Rios, thanks very much. Thank you very much for having me on here. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Thanks for tuning in to the MyPersonalFootballCoach.com Soccer Player Development Podcast. MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Dynamic Ball Mastery Program is the world's leading online individual technical training program, proven and developed at the highest level in the English Premier League. Sign up now to train like the pros and take your game to the next level. Master the ball, master the game.